Welcome to Politicology. I'm Liz Gilbert, in today for Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am so excited for today's panel. Returning to the roundup is Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Thanks so much for being here today, Lene. Glad to be with you. And making her politicology debut is Wendy Davis. Wendy is a former Texas state senator who ran for governor of Texas in 2014 and for Texas's 21st congressional district in 2020. She is also a graduate of Harvard Law School. And as a point of personal privilege, I am an alum of Wendy's campaign. Wendy, it is so great to see you today. So great to be with you, Liz. Thank you. Also returning to the roundup, we have Lucy Caldwell with us today. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, a tech founder, and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you. Good to see you all. On this week's Roundup, the bombshell report that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn the landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. What could happen if Roe is overturned? The impact this can have on people who can get pregnant. And then we will flip over to Politicology Plus, where we are talking about the Ohio primary elections. Again, that will be on Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and explainers and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Monday evening, Politico reported that the Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe versus Wade decision after they received a draft of a majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito. In the draft, dated February 10th, Alito writes that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, and we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. It's important to note that court deliberations have been fluid in the past. Justices have sometimes changed their votes as draft opinions circulate and the court's holding won't be final until it is formally published, likely by the end of June. According to Politico, four of the Republican-appointed justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, voted with Alito in conference after hearing oral arguments in December. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan are working on one or more dissents, according to a person familiar with the deliberations. And it remains unclear how Chief Justice Roberts will vote and whether he will join an already written opinion or draft his own. This marks the first time in modern history of the court that a draft decision has been publicly disclosed while the case was still pending. On Tuesday, Roberts confirmed the authenticity of the draft and said there would be an investigation into the leak. If this holds out, which to be clear is what abortion rights advocates have been predicting since oral arguments, it would be the first time in American history that the Supreme Court would eliminate a constitutional right. So let's start with how each of you reacted to the news when you heard it. 
what was going through your head? Lene, let's start with you. How are you feeling? I think I just am vacillating this week between grief and rage. Um, and, you know, I knew this was coming. In fact, I've had meetings about it repeatedly in the last couple of weeks to prepare for what the federal response should be. But I think, you know, the fact that it came out when it did was shocking. But the fact that it is so incredibly sweeping was even more shocking. You know, I, I assumed that they would uphold the Mississippi law, but I didn't think that they were just going to completely eliminate any right to abortion and by doing so implicate lots and lots and lots of other rights. So uh, just the sweepingness of the decision shocked me. And, um, you know, I've had to do a lot of meditating this week to not have to go and smash something. I, I think you're probably not alone on that. And I think our, our other panelists, um, we'll, we'll get to that part in a second. But Lene, I was also um, wondering if you might be able to lay out the significance of Casey. The draft opinion overrules Roe and Casey, I think. Most people will be familiar with the basics of Roe versus Wade, but I think there are fewer people familiar with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Is that something that you might be able to explain to our listeners? Sure. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was the um, first time that the Supreme Court revisited the Roe decision. So in the early 90s, um, there was another attempt to overturn Roe. Um, and actually, Justice Anthony Kennedy um, apparently changed his position during the negotiations on that case. So um, he was going to vote to uh, overturn Roe and then actually decided to go in the opposite direction and up- uphold it. Um, and so the it... it upheld the basic principles um, that uh, the viability standard would continue, which is to say that you can't ban abortions um, until the point at which a fetus could live independently outside of the person's body. So um, that, you know, that really has laid the groundwork for lots of other um, decisions around personal liberty and privacy um, that we've seen um, since on everything from, um, you know, contraception, to LGBT equality, to um, how you educate your children, to of course marriage, um, and you know that, and that is really what is at, under threat now with this decision that basically wipes away a constitutional right. To Wendy and to Lucy, both would love to get your you know initial takes, how you reacted to the news when you heard, what was going through your head. Um, Wendy, we'll start with you. Well, you know, here in Texas, Liz, we've been living under Senate Bill 8 for more than eight months. Um, And that bill uh, has essentially killed Roe in our state. Um, If you are post-six-week pregnancy here in Texas, getting an abortion inside the state has been impossible now. And it's created a situation where people are having to travel out of state if they have the privilege of being able to do so. So we're already seeing the beginning of this great divide where people can access that right, depending on their their privilege, honestly. Um, When this decision came out, honestly, or when the, the decision was leaked, I was not surprised because I had listened to all of the oral arguments that have happened in the Senate Bill 8 Uh, proceedings before the Supreme Court. It was very clear that uh, Justice Roberts was at odds with the other conservatives on the court, that he was leaning toward an argument that would support 
a 15-week ban, as Mississippi had put in place, while the other five were clearly leaning uh, toward an outright ban. And so I had already set myself mentally for the fact that Roe was going to be overturned. However, to see it in paper, and as Lene said, to see the sweeping nature with which privacy and the rights um, that the, the the privacy principle has allowed in this country from contraceptive care to, of course, marriage equality and, and, and abortion rights was really a blow. And I know living in a state like mine, that there will be efforts to erode other rights as a consequence of the very strong language in that opinion, if it doesn't change dramatically by the time we see the the full opinion in late June or early July. And I think that's a point that we'll get to later in this show. Typically on a weekly roundup, we cover all of the topics of the week. But when you read the news from this week, it is all of the different facets of this leak and what it's, what is going on presently, what it will mean for the future. So I think that's a very good point, and, and we'll get to that shortly. Um, Lucy, your initial reactions and kind of how you're feeling right now. So I really don't get mad anymore, <laughs> and I don't get emotional, and that is maybe from um, my years uh, and my journey as a former Republican turned uh, never Trumper. Um, it is it is very hard for me to get particularly activated. So I would just say I don't feel emotional over this, and that doesn't mean that I don't care about the issue. But I do think that uh, th- it is a problem actually in our in our rhetoric. I think that there is almost a kind of a litmus test for do you feel um, do you feel personally very emotional personally. Um, impacted by this. And it is a problem. And as a kind of litmus test, you care about this issue. And I say that because I think we should work to separate being heavily engaged on this issue and, 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 uh, uh, building a larger constituency of people who really care about this issue while saying, you know, like you don't have to be, you don't have to feel personally impacted by this or full of rage or full of, um, uh, emotion. You don't even have to have a, I mean, a woman in your family or your life, of course we all do, but you don't even have to have a firsthand, um, experience or a secondhand experience with access to, uh, not, I mean, forget just, uh, forget just a, uh, an, a, a safe, um, an accessible abortion, just uh, contraception, right? Because that's that's on the line now too. You know, you should be able to look at this and think this is actually an issue that doesn't affect me at all, uh, and is an issue I don't personally feel emotional about, and I still see that this is uh, critically important. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about political implications, and and we're in a midterms year. Uh, and the other thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, which uh, people, politicology listeners certainly know, is I spend a lot of time thinking about the implications for our politics at the state level. You know, everyone knows Wendy's name. We all met Wendy when Wendy was so brave and took to, uh, you know, the floor in Texas as a state lawmaker. And yet a lot of our discussion around the abortion issue, even in the aftermath of this leaked opinion, is about 
you know, like we need to pass a federal abortion uh, bill, uh, you know, like it's all eyes are on Washington. And and this, and I don't mean to sound like Miss Federalism, you know, every day of the week, 24-7, 365, but of course people know that I do. <laughs> this is a moment where we should really be looking in our own backyards. Uh, you know, as we know, this will the effect of this decision will mean that abortion bans basically go into effect in in more than half of America of states and you know Nancy Pelosi can't save us from that right it's about who are you electing in your state house district right in some places it may be a race that comes down to a matter of hundreds of votes right you know some of these house districts state house districts can be a matter of thousands of voters only, right? So so what I felt like in in reading the leaked opinion and just taking this in in the last few days and thinking about the implications uh, for the months to come is how do we connect this issue for people that seems very Washington and obviously has huge impacts on people personally, but, but how do we sh- use this moment to shift our orientation to down ballot races and to electing people to the offices where we could have an immediate effect, right? Uh, if, if, if you can flip or preserve, you know, a, your state legislative makeup this November, if you're in a state like, take my home state of Arizona, that is a state that has a very, very strong chance actually this year of, of flipping uh, at least one state legislative chamber to blue, right, could very easily have a Democratic governor. It's a battleground state. It is a battleground state that is also a state that is going to have some of the most restrictive abortion laws on the books weeks from now. And so I'm really interested in looking at those kinds of scenarios and saying to to voters, you can really have an impact and you need to get incredibly activated and engaged on this now and and not wait on Washington. This Take this fight to your own backyard. It's a great point and a great transition into, into this statistic, which we found that there's a 2017 study published in the American Journal of Public Health that shows nearly one in four women in the U.S. are expected to get an abortion at some point in their lives. And according to the Guttmacher Institute, 18 states have trigger laws to ban abortion if Roe is overturned or still have pre-Roe abortion bans on the books. And so 58% of women of reproductive age in the United States live in states that Guttmacher calls hostile to abortion. And so to your point, Lucy, about taking it to your backyard and taking it to the states, um, you know, this is this is obviously very timely and very important. And so Lynne, I'm curious if you if you want to expand on these statistics or what Lucy was just mentioning, you know, what we should expect to see um, in the States if, if Roe is overturned. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we need to put our attention because, you know, even when you think about the makeup of the current state governance, um, we expect that number from to go from 18 to about 26 um, very, very quickly. States where um, it will be virtually impossible to get an abortion in any circumstances. So um, that that's more than half the states, as Lucy was mentioning. And um, in some of these places, the only way 
um, to preserve this right is going to be by um, maintaining your Democratic governor, like Gretchen Whitmer, um, you know, by uh, ousting your um, Republican state legislators. And, you know, I was just thinking this morning about how different um, the Virginia election would have gone if folks really believed that this was coming down the pike. Uh, you know, I've seen polls over and over again that obviously the vast majority of the American people support um, support the ability to get an abortion. Um, you know, 70% say that they support it um, in any circumstance or most circumstances. Um, so the politics are kind of on the side of this right um, in terms of the, the broader population. Um, but people didn't believe it would actually go away. Because it's been on the books for 50 years and right. we've never, we've never seen, I've never seen a world um, that did not have Roe versus Wade in it. And so, um, you know, I think that um, people were thinking about inflation or schools being open and things in, in Virginia and picking Glenn Youngkin, but were they really thinking that Glenn Youngkin was going to have their back on this issue? Absolutely right. not. He, um, you know, he is a uh, super pro-lifer and said so during the campaign, but people didn't think that that was actually going to happen. And now it will. So I think that's the, you know, those are the stakes that we're facing now. And that's what we really need to be thinking about. And, you know, ringing Lucy's bell uh, constantly of, you know, Democrats need to pay more attention to their politics at home um, than just the ones here in Washington. And, Lene, we should stop using the term pro-life. I agree. I was thinking the same thing. I'm glad you said that, Lucy. And so, as I mentioned, there are just so many different avenues to go down on this very um, timely issue, important issue. And so now if we can pivot to talk a little bit about the leak um, itself, which which is is a, a phenomenal, and I don't mean that in a positive um, sense, but it really is a, a remarkable kind of once in a lifetime thing that we are living through right now. And so since the story broke on Monday, the leak itself has gotten a ton of news. And so we should still note that we have no idea who leaked the draft um, or what the motivation was and lots of conspiracy theories going around, both on the Republican side, the Democratic side, and, and everywhere in between. So, Wendy, curious um, for your thoughts, how you think we as voters um, and as everyday Americans should be thinking about the leak itself? Well, first of all, I've always thought I had a novel in me, and I've decided now my novel is going to be about the fact that uh, the Chief Justice himself, in my made-up scenario, has leaked this opinion in a desperate play um, to stop <laughs> the other five justices from doing Amazing. what he, he hopes they won't do. Um, but no, in reality, you know, uh, Republican talking points, of course, have wanted us to focus more on the leak rather than the underlying substance of what this uh, ruling would do across the country. Um, and I get that, that that's their talking point. I've also heard people say, you know, we should legitimately be concerned about the fact that this institution that has prided itself and operated always in such a, a strong veil of secrecy has been penetrated in a way that will interfere with and intrude upon people's public trust in the institution, 
But my perspective on that um, is while I don't, you know, necessarily agree that we ought to be telling secrets like this, um, I also believe that the trust and faith that we had in the United States Supreme Court has been eroding long before this leak occurred. And any lack of public trust that exists there now is because the justices have demonstrated themselves more and more and more of late, uh, particularly the conservative ones, that they are there um, functioning as a political body, uh, not as a third branch of government, and that they actually have kind of melded into the executive and the legislative branch, and they've ceased to function as the independent body that they once were. And I think there's no better example of that than if you look at uh, the conservative Sandra Day O'Connor, when she was a justice on the Supreme Court in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, talking about the fact that her own moral views may be in opposition to um, supporting abortion and abortion rights. However, she understood that she couldn't let her moral views intrude upon the legacy um, and the precedent of the court and the reliance that people had entrusted on the decision supporting abortion prior. And that's what we are missing on the Supreme Court now. And that's why the public trust has eroded. And I think it's going to be very, very hard uh, for it to be regained with the current makeup of the Supreme Court. So, Lucy, as Wendy just mentioned, you know, a lot of the Republican talking points have focused on the leak and not the draft ruling itself. And overturning Roe has been a longtime campaign promise of Republicans. Republicans aren't taking a victory lap here, at least not yet. But curious, um, Lucy, what do you think this says about how Republicans are reading the political implications? Well, this was a terrible week for Republican consultants, or maybe a good week, actually, because it makes them even more needed by their crazy candidates. Um, this is really bad news for the Republican consulting class because Roe, it, it's and, and it should be good news for the Democratic consulting class. And I'm sure I will get a lot of flack for how craven that sounds, but I'm just here to tell you what the political implications are of this. Uh, since Roe was passed, that has been such a galvanizing force for the Republican base, right? How do we fight back against Roe, the 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 anti-abortion crowd? It's a massive, massive motivator. It is the underpinning of all kinds of networks, of causes, et cetera. Um, entire campaign apparatuses, entire national networks of groups in a way that has just had a, a, a sustaining energy that is very, very different than some other causes. And so that doesn't go away, but it is it, it definitely completely obliterates that landscape. Um, and the, the, as alluded to earlier, like the, the American people are on the side of access to abortion. Um, you know, there was a YouGov poll this week that found that more than that almost 60% of American adults support legal abortion in most or all cases, and only 14% approve of an outright ban on abortion. And, and, and the most Americans, even 
Americans who use the label pro-life to mean that they oppose abortion. Historically, this has not wavered since Roe. When polled, even though that what is your label, using the labels pro-life or pro-choice, how do you identify, vacillates all the time. Support for Roe and opposition to Roe being overturned has never really wavered. Roe has always been people want Roe. And that may be because when people are, you know, in their private homes and having private experiences of learning that, you know, a, a loved one is facing an unplanned pregnancy or whatever the context may be, the way that they feel in their hearts and in private may be different than what they're signaling externally. And but that ultimately now rests with political leaders, not with court precedent. And the way that people vote in the privacy of their own ballot box or in the privacy of their own mail, mail ballot will be impacted by that if Democrats effectively make that connection, not just to how, to how this precedent completely endangers your right to an abortion, but also your right to all kinds of things. I mean, there a bill in Louisiana that was moved out of committee this week would make uh, certain types of contraceptives illegal. Having an IUD uh, w- would be uh, would be treated in Louisiana like murder. I mean, how many women listening to this episode of Politicology right now have an IUD in their body? I do. So if this bill is passed out of committee and or passed out of the uh, Louisiana state legislature. In the eyes of Louisiana lawmakers, I am a murderer just by have my private uh, medical choices made by me with my doctor. That's not an abortion, right? Would not to so so. I think that is the key here, and Republican consultants know that, and they are now one hundred percent backs up against the wall, and it's really up to the Democratic side to keep them pushed up against the wall that way. And just to jump in on that, Lucy, you know, I think the um, the Republican Party has had the luxury of being able to rile up its base with this, but not to actually put it in place, right? Like they, you can go and rail and pass these laws, but know that the court's going to save you and strike them down because the worst thing that you can have as a political consultant is an issue on which um, your base is super, super far away from the center of the American electorate. And that is what they have on this. They have, you know, a, a base that's very, very anti-Roe. And then they have swing voters who, as we've said, um, are, are pro-abortion access and certainly pro-contraception and all of these other um, things that are now implicated. So they're now having to actually put their money where, where their mouth is. And I think that's going to be, you know, obviously incredibly bad substantively, but also bad politically for them. I just was, um, you know, listening to uh, a debate amongst uh, Republican candidates that um, they all three of them challenged each other to go further on this. (laughs) And they're going to leapfrog each other to the right because that's how you win the primary. But boy, does that not make you a Glenn Youngkin-like figure in the eyes of swing voters. You know, one of the, the fascinating things about redistricting is that Um, we have, as Lene said, found ourselves with people trying to jump further and further to the extreme because the only game in town in so many of these districts is the primary. Um, And what's 
happened as a consequence of that, of course, is that in states like Texas, where the vast majority of our districts are Republican, we have become a state that is ruled by the minority, very much so. I mean, even in Texas, um, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of people believe that Roe should stand. Um, And yet this is used as a, a political tool to advance in in Republican primaries. Well, now that we've elected in our state and other states, these very far right extreme people to represent us, they have no interest in stopping at abortion care as uh, both Lucy and Lene have, have commented upon. They want to take this as far as they possibly can. Plan B is on the table. IUDs are on the table. And before we know it, the pill itself. And for a lot of young people in this country, I think it's hard to appreciate that as late as 1972, if you were single, it was not legal for you to access contraceptive care. That is not to be too extreme, but because we're represented by extremists, that's exactly where we're headed. Because at the root of all of this is the desire to control women, to hold women back, to put us back in our place and out of our careers. Um, and that's that's the danger here. And the further danger, and we've already seen this happening in Texas, is the, the criminalization of abortion, which so many states will have in place if Roe goes away. It threatens to literally imprison women who make a decision to terminate a pregnancy, to exercise autonomy over their own bodies. It happened in South Texas just a couple of weeks ago where a 26-year-old woman was jailed and indicted for murder uh, for exercising a choice to terminate a pregnancy. Um, That's the extreme that we're going to be led to. And if Democrats can't help people see that, not only in our national elections, but as Lucy said, absolutely in our state elections coming up in the midterm, then shame on us. Um, we, we've got a message. We need to make sure that we deliver it. Yeah. So, so to that point, and first of all, thank you all for those those comments. I mean, you're you're bringing it back not only, of course, to the issue, but for the listeners of this podcast to know what they can do, how they can be vocal and supportive and educated on these issues, and and quite frankly, how it's going to impact the upcoming elections. So speaking of the upcoming elections, you know, elections are often determined by the environment that they take place in. And before Monday evening, it potentially looked like the midterms were going to be a slam dunk for Republicans. And so I'm curious how each of you sees this now shaping the landscape. And do you expect that the dynamics will change heading into the midterm elections based on what's been happening this week? Um, Linnea would love to start with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, things looked real dire for Democrats uh, at the beginning of this week. And I think, you know, we are hopeful that this can be 
um, you know, a, a focal point for folks. I think, um, you know, some of what we've seen in terms of Democrats' lackluster polling has been, um, you know, people being frustrated within the Democratic base. And to the extent that that is a problem, I think this might help solve that problem. Um, I do think, though, that it is, A, it's hard to know um, you know, it's it, the reason we would focus on state and local elections and getting out the vote there is that Congress isn't going to do anything. You know, Congress could do something right now. They could pass the Women's Health Protection Act, but they're not going to um, because they would have to end the filibuster to do that. And enough of them have said that they're um, not going to end the filibuster. And in fact, the thing that I think people forget is that both Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have, um, you know, claim to be pro-choice, but they don't support the Women's Health Protection Act. They say that um, it goes too far. So there just are not the votes in the Senate to legislate. Um, And I think it's frustrating when you have Democrats controlling every lever of government here in D.C. and not being able to act on something as important as this, Um, you know, and and that can be demoralizing. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that this can give some energy to the base, particularly if they're focused on those super important gubernatorial races and um, their state legislative races. Um, But there Democrats are in a little bit of a bind because we're going to rail about this, but we're not going to act at the federal level. And that is really disappointing. I actually uh, think that acting at the federal level now, again, I'm just walking into flack for these these uh, opinions that are going to be seen as craven, but just just delivering an impartial, non-emotional political analysis here, which you can take it or leave it. Um, and, and this is a tricky one because you don't want to delay anyone's access to an abortion, of course, or, you know, the care they need, but there is a lot more political energy to be harnessed. And I totally understand the real life implications of this for people. So don't take this as thinking I don't. There's a lot more political upside and energy to be harnessed for Democrats if they both push a federal bill as they have begun to do, but also really stress that the, 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 the real game is in, in the midterms and in those state races. So while I completely understand it would be fabulous if they blew up the filibuster and galvanized and passed a bill tomorrow, uh, it would really take the wind out of the sails to long-term progress in uh, that could be achieved or begun to be achieved in November. And it ultimately would not necessarily help the people who need access to safe abortions most or contraception because that would galvanize the Republican base. And so in turn, we would just then still have the same kind of and worse outcome as pundits have been speculating we will have anyway before all of this. And you would then just have a Republican uh, a Republican majority come in and and undo that. Now, would it be vetoed? Sure. But how, how much of a stopgap is that? Two years? So uh, I think it's tricky, but but I and I'm biased, I would encourage people to really think about this as a fight they need to wage in their state and local races. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent, Lucy. Um, I, 
I find here in the state of Texas where redistricting has essentially placed us in a situation where districts, we have we don't have swing districts here really anymore. We have a couple congressional swing seats and a couple at the, the state house and senate level. Um, but the game in town for us this year is going to be our statewide elections. And I would imagine there are a lot of red states um, where Republicans have had control of redistricting, where that's going to be the case. Um, and I think it's our job really to help impress upon people how incredibly important it is, no matter how red the congressional district or the state house district might be that you live in, your vote is still so incredibly essential uh, for the top of the ticket in these statewide races, which we do have going on in Texas, this midterm cycle. And no matter how blue the district is, uh, that your congressional district or house district, state house district might be, your vote is still needed, even though your district is going to be just fine. Um, if you don't vote in the statewide election, we're not going to be able to make the kind of change at the state level that we ultimately need to see here. Lene, I think it was you who who brought up just just a few moments ago that after the draft was leaked, um, Senator Murkowski said that the draft rocks her confidence in the court. And for Senator Susan Collins, she was also saying that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh's votes to overturn Roe were completely inconsistent with what they were told during confirmation hearings. We also heard Senator Elizabeth Warren with a couple of hot takes. She was filled with righteous anger when she spoke to protesters outside the Supreme Court on Tuesday. And she said that the United States Congress can keep Roe versus Wade the law of the land, and they just need to do it. And so, Lene, I was wondering if for our listeners, you could expand on the Elizabeth Warren um, part of, of those comments, you know, when she says that Congress can and should do something. I know we're vacillating back and forth between talking federal and state level. I'm just trying to arm our listeners with um, potentially how they can participate and what they can do at both levels. And I'd love if you could speak to, um, you know, the Collins and Murkowski quotes again, but in particular, Elizabeth Warren saying Congress just needs to handle this because they can. Yeah, she's right. And the thing that struck me the most about Elizabeth Warren's fiery speech um, was that she is of the age that she remembers what the U.S. was like before Roe. And when I've been talking to folks, I think the the women of that age, um, you know, in their like late 60s, early 70s, um, who recall what this really looked like in reality, um, are the most scared and the most incensed. And, you know, I went home for Christmas and talked to an aunt of mine who is like a perennial independent voter, doesn't really like politics, you know, or uh, sitting in the Midwest having uh, lunch at a diner and the things you're not supposed to talk about are religion and politics, right? And she immediately jumps into this issue. She's like, if they overturn Roe, like we cannot go back. And so I do think that there, you know, for, for somebody in my generation, I don't, I don't remember what that looked like. I've only read about it. Um, you know, I watched Dirty Dancing, sure, but like I didn't experience it. And I think 
that um, it resonates in a different way with people who did. Um, so, and there are a lot of senators that are of that age because the Senate is really old. So, <laughs> right, you know, those folks probably uh, remember that time pre row. Um, the what what we could do at the federal level is pass a bill that's called yeah. the Women's Health Protection Act, or WIPA for short. Um, it doesn't really have a vowel in there that it should be called WIPA, but that's what we call it. So WIPA. Um, <laughs> and what we um, what that would do is codify Roe. So put it, um, in, you know, Brett Kavanaugh can say it's not in the uh, Constitution, but Congress can say, well, it's in the law of the land. And so that would make it um, a national um, right to abortion as part of U.S. law, even if it isn't um, protected by this Supreme Court's view of the Constitution. The House has already passed this bill. Um, and, you know, the Senate it was talking about it and then, um, you know, and then didn't. And I, both Collins and Murkowski um, have claimed that they uh, support codifying Roe, but they don't support this bill, which is the bill that would codify Roe. So, you know, if they want to put some other bill on the table, like happy to talk about it, but they're not. They're just um, saying, oh, I support it, but I don't. And, um, you know, it's the same kind of uh, wishy-washiness that led to us being where we are. They all knew. They knew. They yeah. knew what was coming. Like, yeah. we all watched those hearings. We knew. And Amy Coney Barrett was the cherry on the top of the Sunday. We knew that that was what the outcome was going to be. Um, and so the fact that we've allowed them to continue to call themselves pro-choice while um, supporting these justices that they knew for a fact would overturn this right um, is, is really astounding to me because if, you know, you say you support codifying Roe, but you won't vote for it. You say you support abortion rights, but you want to confirm a bunch of justices who very blatantly don't. I, I don't know why you get to call yourself pro-choice anymore. Right. No, ab absolutely. And I think that's a good and important kind of overview, but also with some very strong specifics of what is happening at the federal level, what could happen. And, and I think that is very helpful for our listeners. And so I, I know that we've already spoken quite a bit about state legislatures that overruling Roe is going to throw the decision back to the states. But Lucy, one of the things that I know you've talked a lot about with Ron um, is how Republicans actually spend more energy and money on these state house races. And, and I know from Wendy's experience, she gets this from a personal level as well. So Lucy, I'd love your take um, on how this decision might actually reshape how Democrats approach from a electoral and political level, um, these state house races with their investments and, and their time versus a focus on, on the federal level. Well, the bad news is that in a way we're already too late because we are in an environment where Democrats completely missed the boat on redistricting despite the uh, clamoring of prominent Democrats who were making this issue number one, people like Eric Holder. Uh, the rest of the Democratic machinery just did not uh, pick up the phone or wake up and smell the coffee on redistricting. So the, the bad news and the worst news is that states that before 2020 were primed to become states that were just naturally trending blue are now back to red in, in many places. So the battle to fight is much, much worse than it was two years ago, four years ago, whatever. 
Um, the good news of some here's a, a little bit of more bad news in it, the Democrats are so unfocused on state legislative races, and I spend a lot of time working in and around elections to state legislatures. Then in many states, including battleground states like Pennsylvania is a state that I've been paying some attention to, there are state ra- there are districts that are rated as D plus districts, D plus districts, meaning, you know, in all likelihood, this race is going to go to the Democrat, where Democrats have failed to field candidates. I have looked at races where the, you have no Democratic candidate in the race, you have a MAGA Republican. And these are D plus districts. So unfortunately, more bad news. And then I'll get to some, I don't know, not bad news. It's too late in many of these states, unless Democrats are going to wage write-in campaigns in some of those races. Um, uh, primaries are over in many of these places and or they uh, the filing deadlines in most places have passed. So those are that's what we're dealing with. The good news is we do have many months between now and November, and there are uh, pieces of the apparatus that I think could naturally become reoriented to this fight uh, and that would could become reoriented to this fight in a way that does not take away from um, the rest of their work. So that would be, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the new entity clerk work, right, which is looking at state and local races. They are pledging, you know, $80 million over the next several years to elect pro-democracy Democrats. That's like, it's like a redundant at this point, but um, to offices that Democrats traditionally don't pay attention to. I think there's a good chance that someone who is a Democrat who doesn't want to like overturn the election, which is most, if not all Democrats, that that person is also probably a pro-choice person, right? And so um, thinking about looking and using that kind of uh, machinery for this cause is a really good thing. It's also really, really incumbent on Democratic voters to and donors, including small dollar donors, to get serious about where the fights are. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Marcus Flowers, is, who is a Democrat, running against Marjorie Taylor Greene has outraised Marjorie Taylor Greene in in that Georgia congressional district. He has outraised her. He's going gangbusters on fundraising. That is an R plus 45 district, right? That's an example of a federal race. <laughs> um, uh, McMorrow, the uh, state legislator in Michigan, who really became a kind of overnight sensation a few weeks ago when she got up onto the floor and said, you know, really took to task another state senator, Lana Tice, in Michigan over the just insanity of, you know, kind of CRT grooming, Republican whack jobbery. She is an example of a person, make her a star, you know, make her uh, the future of the Democratic Party, but she does not need your help in her state legislative race. She is in a D plus gazillion district, right? So it is going to take discipline and restraint these are not sexy fights. These are not going to be sexy districts where you have like maybe the the most charismatic, most magnetic democratic politician that you've ever seen. And it is going to take, it's going to be a slog, but it is about allocating resources, allocating your time and your treasure to races that are those on the edge cases where it's a difference between a Republican or a Democrat in a state legislative race. But that 
actually, when you zoom out, becomes the difference between your loved one or you having having access to the kind of reproductive rights we want to ensure. I, I could not agree more um, with that message. And I think Lene and Wendy would also agree the the discipline, the racist not being sexy. I mean, this is this is what makes and breaks campaigns, right? And and elections. And so I, I think that's a great message. And I'm glad that you shared that. I want to say before we move on to talking about the broader impact that this ruling could have on other rights, Wendy, I want to end on on this subject with with you. Who controls state legislatures and governorships is going to be so important, as we've already discussed throughout this episode, um, on who has access to abortion. It's going to be important in determining also whether Republicans can steal the 2024 election. And so just keeping that context in mind, as I feel like we do on politicology nearly every episode, politically, how could the shift in focus to this hot topic right now, how could this shift in focus also help ensure that democracy survives? Yeah, that's such an important point, Liz, because you're correct. Um, And as you said, you've talked about frequently you know, having Democrats in power in as many states as possible will assure the integrity of elections going forward and keep us from a situation where we have these shills in office who are there simply to uh, do whatever Trump instructs and to overturn the will of people and really overturn democracy itself. So I, I think it's so important to stress that. And then on this topic itself, um, I do hope it will be a big motivator for people to vote in our state elections, and it will be incumbent upon us to help them see the importance of that. And I think one of the, the really motivating ways to achieve that is to help people see through the personal stories and the narrative experiences of people in states like Texas. Um, And we've got a lot of stories that we can tell right now because we have been living under Senate Bill 8. This is a a dramatic and terrible uh, day-to-day experience that people are having here. Unless you've faced an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy, I think it's hard really to wrap your mind around the desperation that someone can feel in that situation. Um, And it's important for us to empathize with that, that we hear about those experiences. And I hope that as part of these next few months, we will create a a platform for that and we will give people the safety and the love and the support they need to share those experiences. I hope that we can help people understand the logistical nightmare that presents itself if we have to leave our own states to go to safe, free states uh, for abortion care. And the fact that even for those who have had the privilege of being able to do that, it's challenging. And, And for others, even though there have been wonderful practical support organizations on the ground trying to help them achieve Uh, the travel uh, and the overnight stays and the childcare support that they need. As one woman said recently, you could charter a private jet for me. And with my five children and the obligations that I have, there's no way I could go to another state and get an abortion. And if we're concerned about income inequality, and I think we all are, 
I hope we take to heart, you know, as Lucy was saying, even if this isn't an experience that we feel is going to touch us personally, I hope we will take to heart what happens in a situation where women are are trapped into forced pregnancy. There have been studies that demonstrate that that traps a person in poverty and it creates the the generational poverty, of course, that increases over and over and over again, generation after generation, uh, the inability to escape that. And that's not just bad for that individual or her family. It's bad for the economy. We all know uh, what an important role women play in this economy and how dramatically that increase as a consequence of being able to control when and whether we have children we saw the impact to our economy when women were forced to leave the workforce during COVID. Um, and if we really wanted to create a climate that supported family, we should make sure on our agenda and as part of our messaging, we're talking about the fact that not only should we move away from a conversation about taking reproductive rights away, but we need to be moving further and further into the area of the child tax care credit and the paid family leave and the the affordable child care needs that really do help make healthy whole families um, that contribute to a better and stronger America. That needs to be our message. I think that's great. And, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, being cognizant of time, I, I want to touch on in these final few moments here, something that has been, I think, lingering throughout this episode, which is the broader impact that this ruling could have on, on other rights. And the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and unenumerated rights, the Supreme Court has held that the 14th Amendment grants more unenumerated rights than just abortion. It is the right to interracial marriage, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to obtain contraceptives, and, and so on. And so I was hoping, um, as kind of our final prompt of the episode, if each of you could touch on your personal thoughts on how you believe this draft decision, if it stands, how it will impact these other rights. Lene, would love to start with you. Sure. You know, I think that um, <laughs> there's a reason that Alito, Justice Alito, um, went to great lengths to say in this draft opinion, well, it's not going to be applied to anything else because he knows that this would be earth shatteringly bad in terms of public opinion if, um, you know, if all of these other decisions were implicated and other rights taken away. Um, but, you know, I just think it, to step back more broadly, it's not about any specific you know, it's not about Lucy's IUD or my gay marriage. It's about the fact that the Supreme Court is about to apparently say that we don't have liberty and bodily autonomy. Like, full stop. That, that is astounding. And the way that they're looking at this is to say anything that isn't specifically written down in the Constitution um, you don't have the right to do it. The government can tell you not to, even if that's about your own body. 
And I think that that is, you know, that that's the the broader umbrella that that we're looking at. So what does that mean for, um, you know, for a whole range of of things? Does that mean that, um, you know, you can take a pregnant woman and um, lock her up somewhere because you don't like how she's behaving while she's pregnant? Does that mean that you can, um, you know, take someone's kids away that you think that you could, um, you know, raise them better? There's all kinds of things that are so much more broad. And, um, you know, does that mean that, well, you know what, there wasn't a a history of um, gay sex being legal. So now we're going back to sodomy laws. Like that's what, that's where we're getting at. And, you know, I think um, people have been focused on marriage, but I'm focused on Lawrence. I'm focused on the 2003 opinion that said it's, it's not okay for a police officer to arrest me in my own home for having gay sex. Um, that's where this leads. And so I think like, we just have to think about that. It's not about privacy. It's about liberty and bodily autonomy. And those things are now on the line. Lucy. Yeah. You know, I'm not a lawyer like my co-panelists. Um, uh, so I won't delve into the implications of Roe. Many people who are pro-choice, have had issues with Roe for various reasons. I won't get into that. I will just get into the political implications of this and how we should be thinking about Republicans and whether they deserve our trust, which is that they do not. Uh, I said recently, I, I said on a like an MSNBC show, you know, this is not your grandma's Republican Party. And, and my friend and MSNBC uh, host Tiffany Cross said, well, hang on, it, the Republican Party wasn't that great for my grandma, essentially. And that is true. <laughs> um, but for people like me and others who are anchoring still in our hearts of hearts, not in mine anymore, but in your heart of hearts to the idea that the Republican Party could become um, this sort of decent, um, this this uh, force for uh, just like a, a different approach to how we uh, think about um, free enterprise or how to stimulate the economy or what the best way to organize our lives is generally in a benevolent way, that train has left the station and while we cannot burn the party, Republican Party down to the ground tomorrow or overnight, and we do have to think about the fact that they are going to continue to be a force in American politics, uh, and, and we have to make assessments about, at times, like, this, is a, this Republican is better than this one, and so on and so forth, so forth. writ large, the Republican Party is now activated by a base that is zealous and resembles more of a cult than a political party. They do not have principles other than a a zealousness toward a a really sort of white white supremacist, uh, fundamentalist Christian orientation. I don't mean that everyone in the Republican Party is a fundamentalist Christian uh, white supremacist, but I mean to say that makes up the core of everything that emanates from the Republican Party at this point. And and that is how we should be thinking when we think about the implications of a decision like this. You cannot trust Lisa Murkowski. You cannot trust Susan Collins. You cannot trust the Republican down the street who comes to your door to ask you to sign her um, her petitions to to get on the to get on the ballot and be your next state senator, even if she's like the nicest PTO mom and, you know, just like 
a pillar of the community. <laughs> these are not trustworthy people right. and, and they will continue um, to pursue these things in ways that we probably cannot yet even imagine what's on their, what's on their goal sheet. Yeah. And, and Wendy, as, a, as the final question, I'm changing it up on you just a little bit, but uh, for everybody listening right now saying, I need to do something, can you leave us with some words of wisdom? What will be the most effective way to go forward? And for people who are ready to get to work, what might you suggest they do? The solutions here lie in the political landscape. And what that means is that it's incumbent upon each of us to exercise our vote, whether we're doing it in support of our daughters or granddaughters or our loved ones who may be gay. Um, we need to exercise our vote and, and own our responsibility to that in a way that we never have before. And what I would encourage is for people to please think about our obligation to bring others to the polls. Um, maybe, maybe we, you know, land on an idea of five friends, right? That, that each of us is going to find five friends who otherwise would have sat this midterm out and get them to vote. And to understand that our, our liberty, as Lene said, is at stake and that we threaten to become a government that believes that government is the, the um, bearer of our rights and liberties and that the fact that we are born uh, with these inherent freedoms and liberties uh, will go away. Um, if you don't want a government that wants that kind of control in your life, everything is at stake here, everything. And we've got to vote as though we understand that. And I'll certainly be doing my part. And I know our co-panelists will as well. I hope everyone listening to the program will take the responsibility and the, the privilege of doing that too. Because at the end of the day, we do still now anyway, live in a democracy and let's vote as though we believe in that. Amen. And so before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. And more importantly, you should follow at Jessica Post on Twitter, who runs the DLCC, uh, which is the uh, organization you should give all your money to if you want to elect Democrats at the state level. Absolutely. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Great. Wendy? I'm at Wendy Davis on Twitter. Perfect. Thank you all so much. And now we will flip over to Politicology Plus. Thanks, everybody. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.